0: Your source for community, Muskoka-made talk shows are on Muskoka Magazine, The Bay, 88.7. Hey, this is Dr. Shervin. Muskoka Magazine is brought to you by Dairy Lane Dental, keeping Muskoka smiling for over 30 years. Please visit dairylanedental.com. This is Boyer's Modern History of Muskoka with your host, Patrick Boyer. Ever since Muskoka opened for settlement in the 1860s, the district embraced, in addition to indigenous peoples, two distinct societies. They were first known as settlers and cottagers. Today, we might call them full time and part time Muskokans. Both are connected to the district. Both had and still have different needs and expectations. This produced a traditional economic life for those living in the community year round, while in tandem, a parallel vacation economy emerged. Is there overlap? Of course. Are they connected? Intrinsically. But let's explore this further. One way to recognize this social dichotomy are two classic Muskoka events, the summer regatta and the fall fair. For seasonal Muskokans, generally city people, water athletic competitions sponsored by cottagers associations have been, ever since the 1870s, a highlight event of summer. The Muskoka Lakes Association owns the North American record for longest continuously operating summer regatta. Meanwhile, for year-round Muskokans, the local folks, fall fairs organized by the district's agricultural societies became enjoyable communal events young and old, and everybody else draw, drawn together and savoring the best of Canadian rural life, collecting red, blue, or white ribbons for prize-winning bread, cookies, pies, and cakes, livestock, fabric creations, floral and vegetable entries, poultry, honey, and art, devouring candy, ca- candied apples and hot dogs and candy floss riding the Ferris wheel, merry-go-round, and hailing the scent of horses, chatting up old flames. There is some overlap in participation, but the activities, conversations, dress code, and ethos of water sport regattas and fall fair adventures sure do go a long way to portraying two distinct communities and their separate universes in a single district. Now, with this concept of two-sector social economy in mind, let's explore another example, postal service. You might say a letter is a letter is a letter, but peeling back the layers of what a mail system is all about does reveal another dimension of Muskoka's two solitudes dwelling in one place, yet different universes. Settler communities that prospered and grew got post offices, which not only instituted postal service, but offered a community gathering place. (laughs) Going to fetch the mail meant reading public notices, seeing friends, catching the latest gossip. For many small centers, The post office was a pleasant social hub because it did not come with the expectations of being either in the general store or the church. Meanwhile, back at the lake, the Skokas summer vacationers, whether holidaying at resorts or their private lakeside estates and cottages, ardently wanted mail service on a par with what they had had in the city. And here's where the vacation economy kicks in, with Muskoka entrepreneurs ready to supply whatever city folk expect. Summer resort operators, marine service centers, and shops in Muskoka's wee communities applied to Ottawa for a summer post office. Summer post office, eh? Hmm. The townies and villagers, Muskoka's permanent residents, could carry on as usual with their established post offices, while these convenient part-time post offices could be fitted up for Muskoka's part-time community. Designed for vacationers and tourists under post office regulations, summer post offices would be open from spring, May or June, to early fall, September. Now here's the thing, there was no other region in Canada with a greater proliferation of summer post offices than the district of Muskoka. Once again, the numbers show this tiny district because of its unique location on the southernmost part of the rugged Canadian Shield had acquired an outsized role providing an accessible escape from urban pressures in the northern hinterland. It did not happen by being passive. This was the activist entrepreneurial response of full-time Muskokans strengthening the pillars of the district's distinctive vacation economy. Around the rim of Lakes Muskoka, Rosso and Joseph, and to the north, Lakes Mary, Vernon, Ferry, Peninsula and Lake of Bays, and south around Sparrow Lake and west of Georgian Bay, summer post offices sprung up. They appeared, as postal historian Susan Sheffield put it, in both small and grand resort hotels. Letters, postcards, newspapers, parcels, and other shippable goods were received and dispatched through an intricate network of mail routes actively serviced by Muskoka steamships on the lakes, railway companies operating many trains daily through Muskoka, and dozens of post office contractors moving bags of mail. Mail taken to the Huntsville, Utterson, Bracebridge, Gravenhurst, or Killworthy train stations for the southbound morning train would arrive in Toronto and be received by the addressee that afternoon. Muskoka's 51, yes, 51 summer post offices to serve seasonal Muskokans enabled hundreds of thousands of people to relax in the Northland's rustic splendor while keeping in contact with city families, friends, and businesses. Now anybody who knows about Muskoka's vacation land also knows the district is a cherished home for dozens and dozens of summer camps, right? So in addition to summer post offices at resorts, they were next extended to Muskoka camps. Mail was really the only good way in the 1920s because telephone service was not just limited, but a phone call destroyed the psychological distance someone had achieved in escaping to Muskoka. Letters preserved distance, extended time, and could be read or ignored. But there was a problem with the camps. A century ago, envelopes were addressed without much detail. Postal codes, of course, did not yet exist, but even street addresses or post box numbers might not be included because the sender didn't know them and just assumed the post office staff knew the intended recipient and would get the letter to them. It was a good assumption. Even into the 1950s, letters in Bracebridge, for instance, could be addressed simply, Pat Boyer, town, and I'd get it. However, when this folksy practice, which was fairly general across the country, in smaller communities at least, applied to someone attending one of Muskoka's many summer camps, the post office faced the challenge of undeliverable mail it couldn't forward a letter to a camp when its post office locale had not been written on the envelope. Letters often just gave the intended recipient's name, Brian Green or Betty Black, and the camp name. For instance, Billy Bear, Forest Rock, Glenokawa, Kagawagama, or Roe Bruin, without even adding Huntsville, Utterson, Port Sydney, Dorset, or Baysville. Where those camps were located. This required, in a time when postal service really meant what that term implies, not consigning such letters to the dead letter box or stamping it returned to sender, but going further with service. Preparing a list of all Musko camps with summer post offices showing both its name and post office location, then distributing this guide sheet to every post office's mail sorters. And that's what was done. Of course, the steamships were really pivotal for Vacation Economy, Muskoka's postal service around the lakes. So when we return after a brief station break, let's look at the role of steamships and also their counterpart steam trains in Muskoka's postal system a century ago. By Muskoka for Muskoka. Your collection of Muskoka-based talk shows. Muskoka Magazine. The Bay. 887. I'm Dr. Shervin from Dairy Lane Dental, and you're listening to Muskoka Magazine. This is Boyer's Modern History of Muskoka with your host, Patrick Boyer. In 1866, the first inland waterways mail contract from Muskoka was awarded by the post office to A.P. Coburn, who was operating Muskoka's first steamship, Winona. The mail contract covered service on the route between Bracebridge and Russell one trip per week, 10 trips total for the season. It was a start. These were early days. Decades passed. Muskoka's vacation economy expanded. The number of waterways contracts climbed and mail service was no longer once a week, but daily. At the Royal Muskoka Hotel, owned by the Gravenhurst-based Navigation Company, with financial backing from the railway, mail service operated twice a day, with the company's (laughs) own steamships calling the summer resort's busy wharf on Lake Rosso. Over the years, many Muskoka vessels carried mail, an additional source of income for steamship operators fulfilling their role in Muskoka's vacation economy. That steam whistle you heard. Oh, here she comes again. Yes, that's the Royal Mail Ship Seguin. Her name is often abbreviated to RMS Seguin. In keeping with long-standing practices of Muskoka's postal service economy, passengers can mail a letter or postcard on board and it will be stamped and delivered. The Royal Mail Ship Seguin, operated by the Muskoka Steamships and Discovery Center from her home port at Gravenhurst, is the only remaining twin screw steamship running in in North America. Now on Muskoka's Northern Lakes, The Huntsville and Lake of Bays Navigation Company provided steamer service during navigation season. Such vessels as the Empress Victoria, the Jim, the Mohawk Bell, the Joe, the Algonquin and the Iroquois served people around Mary, Ferry, Vernon and Peninsula Lakes and the Lake of Bays, carrying mail, passengers and freight between communities and resorts. The age of steam reached its zenith exactly when Muskoka was opening up for development. And steam trains were essential partners with the steamships in Muskoka mail service. The mighty Grand Trunk Railway ran a dozen trains north daily through the Huntsville Station at the height of summer's vacation season. But Little Portage Flyer, the world's shortest Commercial Railway, running only between Lake of Bays and Peninsula Lake, was part of this network too. Delivering and collecting dozens of mailbags collected by steamships daily around Lake of Bays. On the main lines, post office employees and specially designed mail cars received and opened mail bags and sorted and stamped the posted items at counters with destination cubicles while the train spread to the sped down to the city. Speed and efficiency in picking up forwarding and delivering mail gave everyone concern an esprit de corps making reliable postal service a key economic driver. Even at stations where trains didn't stop they slowed down passing through town onto the station platform a mail car worker dropped a bag for that town then a little further on snagged another bag without going mail off a sling close to the tracks five other things about Muskoko Postal Service in the roaring 20s were Hallmarks of a strengthening vacation economy. All Canadians had heightened appreciation for unfettered postal service after four grim years of war when mail censorship restricted freedom of speech and limited communication. Now, in peacetime, letters to and from loved ones in military service no longer spilled from resealed envelopes like cut out paper dolls after army censors scissors had sliced out names locations numbers and dates and, and criticisms. In an era when mail was still the principal form of communication between people the end of censorship underpinned the joyful upsurge in letters flowing through Canada's postal service. A second change also resulting from the war, was extensive mailing of parcels. In February, 1914, Ottawa introduced parcel post to expand mail service. Six months later, World War began and soon thousands of Canadian soldiers and nurses overseas began receiving parcels from the home front. In Muskoka, patriotic associations Red Cross chapters, the Women's Institute, and families flooded the postal system with packages containing medical supplies, Christmas cakes, knitted socks and scarves, quilts, cigarettes, candy, and newspapers. Millions of parcels were being mailed from 1914 to 1918, and that had acculturated people to use the postal service for much more than letters. Third, businesses increased the volume of mail being delivered. Purchasing by post became popular as people in remote and rural regions, including many parts of Muskoka, shopped from mail order catalogs, national retailers were now distributing to ever more people showcasing their wide range of products. A fourth use of the mails helped Muskoka's vacation economy rebound after the war. Telephone service was coming in, but long-distance calls were still a challenge. So, for booking reservations at Muskoka's resorts, mail was still most reliable. But the district resorts not only mailed back reassuring confirmations, They also began mailing flyers to prospective vacationers and running ads in Canadian and American city newspapers, promoting the Muskoka Cure at their summer facilities. Their postal address, the only method for contact. Of course, word of mouth advertising is best. Hearing directly from somebody you know and like about a new product, special service, Or remarkable place to go on vacation. Without doubt, one of the biggest boosters for Muskoka's vacation economy was the little postcard. This was the fifth factor. Not hundreds, but thousands of different Muskoka scenes were printed on postcards. This practice developed long before the war, but in the 1920s, postcards skyrocketed in popularity. Vacationers daily mailed a picture with a message to scattered friends across North America about their coveted Muskoka holiday. This incredible scene is where I'm enjoying the time of my life. Wish you were here. Love, Billy. These brief messages, you know, the tweets and selfies of the roaring 20s, enabled individuals to celebrate Muskoka, boast about having a destination holiday, and by stirring envy, recruit even more vacationers to summertime Muskoka. These idyllic postcard images, their accompanying messages, one-cent postage stamps, even the post office cancellation stamp, are all enduring records of Muskoka's development transportation, tourism, fashions, commerce, technology, speech idioms, and human emotions. Many history books include these postcards. Bruce McClellan's two charming books of postcards from Lego Bays encapsulate cultural, social, and natural history through five decades of well-chosen cards from his extensive personal collection. The years from 1900 to 1950, Bruce says, were the glory years for postcards, starting with the prosperity of the Edwardian era, followed by growing travel and tourism, the opening of successful resorts, and advances in printing technology. With so many of these photographic gems arriving through the mail, families kept albums. Even in 1915, McClellan has documented, with Canada's population less than 8 million, people mailed more than 65 million postcards. Staggering. Yes. Postal service certainly was a catalyst for Muskoka's vacation economy. The district's year round residents knew the importance of summer camps and lakeside resorts and seasonal cottages. They weren't municipal entities that qualified for a post office in the traditional pattern, but everybody saw the social, cultural and economic advantages of extending reliable mail service delivery and pickup to where half muskoka's population was to be found living through spring summer and fall hey you've got mail thank you for listening producer of uh, boyer's modern history of muskoka here on hunters bay radio in huntsville is jacob krieger i'm patrick boyer